Well, it's that time again, the time of year that makes us forget that we are about to endure five months of really terrible weather. Now you're like, you think you're counting. December, January, February. And you're like, March is going to be nice. March is not going to be nice. June will be nice. And May 28th is going to snow. Now the good news is that we are also about to overspend and make some really bad financial decisions too in the next couple weeks, right? And probably gain about 10 to 15 pounds as well. So it's going to be cold, broke, and chubby. <laughs> Which is a problem for me because these clothes are already <laughs> really too tight to begin with. Amen? Don't say amen. Good job. But the good news is Christmas! Give it up for Christmas. It's coming. It's coming. It's only four weeks away, and in those four weeks, we get to pack all of those wonderful best parts of Christmas into life. And I'm talking about family. Who doesn't love family during the Christmas? We all love family during the Christmas. You're like, me, mostly. Traditions, music, food, shopping, gifts, and stories. Now, the stories surrounding Christmas are some of the most beloved stories that we have. We all have some Christmas stories. And if I asked you about your favorite Christmas story, you'd say one of three things. You'd probably talk about family memories of Christmases, long time, uh, Christmases of long ago when your uncle acted like a fool and the cops came. Everybody got, we know you got that story. Even if you don't want to raise your hand, we, he's probably sitting next to you. We understand how that goes. Or the one time when you were at your grandparents' house during Christmas and grandpa busted out his old VHS tapes of his vacations from years past and there was this video of him doing a performance with a group of Turkish belly dancers. True story. Love you, Grandpa Kyler. Rest in peace. Now, if you didn't have a great family memory, there's probably a few Christmas stories that you like to talk about in the movies that you've seen, right? There's a lot of great Christmas movies out there. Who doesn't love that movie, A Christmas Story? Everybody, who has seen A Christmas Story? Everybody here has seen A Christmas Story. If the person next to you didn't have their hand up, you better tackle them after church, make them go to your house and put that movie on. Because who doesn't like little Ralphie in his Red Rider BB gun? Ralphie, you gotta shoot your eye out, boy. Who doesn't love the bunny suit coming down the stairs or, or the tongue getting stuck on the pole or Ralphie trying to help his dad change the tire and he spilled the, 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 the bolts and he yelled out, Fudge! And the guy's mouth, you don't know what I'm talking about. Watch the movie. How about Miracle on 34th Street? Charlie Brown Christmas, Home Alone, the Grinch, Elf, Die Hard, all Christmas classics. Now, hopefully, if you have a favorite Christmas story involving the family or a favorite Christmas movie, you also have a favorite Christmas story or element from the birth narrative of Jesus from the Bible. You got one of those? What's your favorite? Anybody want to tell me? Yes, sir. What's your favorite? 
That's right, Mary and Joseph. How about the manger, right? You got the manger. You got the star. You got the shepherds. You got the angels singing. You got that sweet Christmas tree that was next to Jesus' manger thing. was like 40 foot tall. Not in the Bible. Just testing you. You got all sorts of really amazing elements of the Christmas story. And those are all great. But it may come as a surprise to you. But I don't think any of those elements are present in the most important Christmas story. The most important, foundational, critical, most necessary verses in the Bible about Christmas don't say anything about Mary and Joseph. They don't mention anything about wise men. doesn't mention anything about a star or a manger or gold or frankincense or myrrh. Now, all these elements we love are very important. They're all representative of the historical and observable elements of Christmas. And we love those and they carry meaning for us and we like to talk about them, we like to sing about them and we will talk about them and sing about them as we build up to Christmas. But this morning, instead of talking about the historical and physical elements of Christmas, I want to set the stage for those things by talking about the theological, the spiritual, the mystical elements of Christmas that give meaning to the physical and historical. Because the the physical and historical give us insight into the work of God, but the spiritual and mystical give us insight into the mind of God. And that's the place where we can find power and insight and inspiration and motivation for all of us here below. It's understanding the mind of God it helps us gain true meaning and true understanding and true inspiration. Now, if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn to the book of John chapter one. You can also use the Bible app. We're back in the Bible app. So if you have the Bible app, you can go to events and you can find Altered Church and that way you can follow along with the notes and there's reading plans, et cetera, et cetera. Great tool. Or you can just look up there. So starting in verse one, in the beginning was the word And the word was God and the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, if this is your very first time coming to church, or if you haven't been to church in a long long time, if you've not read much of the Bible, you're reading this and you're thinking that this is pretty complicated. You're thinking like, what does that even mean? Like, can you make sense out of that? It's pretty tricky. The good news is, It's really confusing and complicated for everybody else too. In fact, I always dread teaching this passage because it's confusing. But as I said, it's foundational to us understanding the true meaning behind Christmas and what it means for us. So it's important for us to work through it. And I think we can do that. But I need everyone to concentrate. Put your thinking caps on. Pay attention. And I think we can work our way through this. The author of this book, a guy named John, is writing this to a Greek-speaking audience. These people are Greek. They're they're not from Ohio. They're not from Jerusalem. They're from, from the various parts of Greece. And these people, just like us, have their own culture and bias and background that they bring into the interpretation of the text. Sort of like when I'm preaching, I speak using a language that you can understand. I, I, I teach using uh, cultural examples and metaphors that you can understand. If I went to Mississippi, they might not be able to understand me as well. 
If one's in England or South Africa, I may not be relevant because I don't know that culture. That's the same thing John is doing here. So I want to present this passage in a way that it was presented to the original audience. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning, and that probably just got even more difficult to understand. I probably just made it worse. Because what the heck is the Logos? Logos, thank you. Logos. That was really nice of him, but it totally distracted me. So I'm going to take a second. <laughs> Get my preach back on one second. Okay. Logos is translated into the English as word. But it means more than that. The word logos for the Greeks was a divine or godlike essence. It was the impersonal, impersonal mind of the divine. For the Greeks, the logos was a religious term. It was a spiritual force. So with that in mind, I'm going to read it again. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. John is speaking directly to his Greek audience, and he's saying, hey, the Logos, which you know, is eternal, which means existing from eternity past. Never created, never born, has existed since the beginning of time, before the beginning of time. The Logos is with God and is, in fact, equal with God. And by the way, the Logos is God himself. So still a little bit confusing, but what he's saying in these two sentences, in 24 words, is introducing something to his audience that they've never heard before. And it was likely to change their lives forever. He tells them that something that they had been seeking after, something that they had been unable to find, was more than they thought it was. Now I wonder, as we are sitting here and as I'm standing here facing the Christmas season, beginning a new sermon series, trying to process these really difficult and technical passages, if maybe there is something that you've been expecting or waiting for or seeking after or feeling or craving that you've not yet satisfied. I bet that's true. I bet you have. I bet that would describe all of us in some way. I'm confident that every single person here in this room is seeking after something, feeling some sort of void, looking for value or identity in some sort of thing that hasn't been satisfied. As soon as I get this job, things are gonna get better, but the job comes and things never get better. As soon as I got to school, it's just, just, the school, it takes up so much of my time, and I'm so distracted. As soon as I get out of school, things are going to feel better for me, and I'm going to feel satisfied, but you get out of school, and there's still no peace. When she says yes, when I ask the question, and she says yes, I'll finally be satisfied. But then she says yes, and things get more complicated. The list goes on. As soon as I make more money, as soon as vacation comes, as soon as the kids leave this house, as soon as I graduate, 
As soon as I move into that house, as soon as I find a better church, as soon as, and as soon as those things come, better never comes. Satisfied never comes. Because human beings are experts at seeking but never finding, and we exist in this state of perpetual longing and desire. The problem is, it's only going to get worse because we are entering into a season that is known for materialism and financial pressure. I promise you that during this coming season, you will feel like an inadequate parent or aunt or grandmother or grandfather. You're going to feel remorse and regret. You're going to feel that special sorrow that only comes during the holidays because you think about your family and what they expected from you and how you've let them down. Or maybe you think of the people that you've lost or the ones that are still here yet a bit distant. This is the season of searching and feeling unsettled. Happiness and contentment for you, for us, is way over here. And we exist in this place way over here. And the more we move towards this ideal of happiness and contentment and satisfaction, the more the mark moves this way. We never quite get there. And maybe that's why you're here today. Searching, but not knowing for what. Feeling unsatisfied, but not knowing what it is that will satisfy. This is the same situation for the people that John was talking to 2,000 years ago. People were longing and people were seeking. People knew there was more to life than what they were experiencing, but they couldn't find it. Maybe John is using a word that is specific to his audience, but his message, his message is transcendent, meaning it's for all of us. The message is for all time because it points to the things that we've been searching and longing for, the things that we can't quite identify, that thing that we've been chasing but don't know the name of it, that satisfaction that we can't quite obtain. And he says in 24 words, in two sentences, that our deep longing for the unknown and unnamed something is a desire for God. The thing that we fix our eyes on, even when we don't know it, the thing that we desire after, the thing that we chase and try to, try to fulfill or meet with something else is always God. And God is not an impersonal force or spirit. God is a person, but more than a person, because it says in verse three, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Understand that this deep longing that you've always had this thing that you've been searching for that can't quite satisfy is a person. It's a person. But he's more than a person. He's the source of all creation. There's nothing that has ever been made that is not carefully designed and created through him. He is the life force that flows through every human being whoever has walked the earth, whoever will walk the earth. The value of every human being, the sparkle in a human being's eye that makes you look at them and say, life is in there, is born through him. 
comes from him. But we're just not, we're not just talking about a positive energy or, 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 or creative force. We're talking about a creator and life giver who has authority over evil and darkness. It says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness is incomparable to the light. Because light always illuminates and exposes and darkness flees in the presence of light. And this is really good news because so much of our experience in this world is in darkness. The darkness and dysfunction of the world is all around us. You saw it yesterday, the day before. You saw it this morning, probably on the news, on Facebook, on Twitter. You'll see it when you go home. There's darkness and dysfunction in our past. There's darkness and dysfunction that we know lives in our own hearts. If we could ever sit down and have the courage and the humility to say, God, show me, then we can see it and point to it as part of the story of our lives. It's all around us. This is verse nine, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The creator, the life giver, the one who has power and authority over evil and darkness is coming into the world not as an invisible force or something that we can't see or understand, but as something personal and something tangible to give light, to reveal and illuminate a path for all of us in the darkness. The true light, a light that does not fail or falter and was coming to point us to a clear path home. And in the next verse is where the true miracle is. In verse 14, this is the verse that we sing about. It's why we unwrap presents and wear ugly sweaters and decorate trees and eat cake with nasty fruit inside of it. The logos, that longing that we can't identify the creator of the universe, the giver of life, the one who has authority over evil and darkness became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Heaven descending to earth, God himself living among us. True power, true light, true love, true hope came to earth and we call him Jesus. And it's through Jesus that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. It is through Jesus that we realize the full picture of God's glory and God's grace and God's love. Understand that we can see glimpses of the majesty of God or glimpses of his nature in the mountains because the mountains are beautiful and they're majestic. And we can see glimpses of God's glory in, in, in his creative power in newborn babies and puppies. But we can only see God fully through the one who created all things, Jesus Christ. And this is why we say Merry Christmas. Because in the mind of God, we were too distant, too broken, too incapable, too submersed in darkness to make our way to find him. We were too far to find him and too blind to see him, so he came down to us. So the manger, 
Mary and Joseph, the wise men, the shepherds, the angels singing songs, all these are merely symbols and footnotes to the grand miracle of God reaching into human history to rescue us from our own brokenness. I think about the impact of what this means for all of us. And I can see all of your eyes and all of your faces. Think about the impact of what it means for each one of you. It means that you and I matter to God. And, and when I say matter, I mean like really matter. I'm not talking about that self-serving care of athletes or celebrities or politicians or relatives and even the self-serving love that we can have when we care for people when it's convenient or beneficial or good for a reputation. This is God who has everything, the creator of all things, the giver of life, the one who has authority over evil and darkness coming down into history to sit with us, to listen to us, to heal us, love us, challenge us, and ultimately die for us because of us. Because of his compassion for us and his mercy on us. I think that if we can really embrace this, it could really change our lives. Because I know, I know there's 25 women in this room who've at one point in their lives thought they were inadequate as a mother or a wife. You get these feelings when you watch your kids and you see your husband make a bad choice that you're somehow to blame. You know what I'm talking about. And you feel like if you had a little bit more time or gave more energy that things would be different or they would just listen better or their grades would be better or they'd have priorities that are more aligned with what you believe is right. Listen, God, taking on flesh, descending from heaven for you, says that in the middle of all your flaws and regrets, you, just a singular being in a sea of billions and billions and billions of people, matter to God. He came for you because of his love for you. Not because of your performance as a mom or a sister or a friend or a wife or a coworker. He came for you. Men, he came for you not because you got a good job or not because you provide well or not because you can fix things. Not because you can change the oil and do the brakes. Not because you can build a house. Not because you have a good education. Not because you play baseball with your kids. Not because you can teach your son all the ins and outs and rules of football. Addicted or sober, in debt or financially secure, married or divorced, Republican or Democrat, hurting or healing, he came for you, not because of who you are today, but because of who he is and the way he will shape your future. Today, tomorrow, forever. He descended to earth, God becoming flesh. 
And this means that in our bleakest, most hopeless stories, we are never too far outside the reach of God's intervention. You'll hear about this as we talk about the Christmas story in the weeks to come, but we know that God used a family marked by extreme dysfunction. 14 generations are listed, 14 generations in the lineage of Jesus. Dysfunction, total, complete, and utter dysfunction. And Jesus had a mother who had a really unlikely story to tell to her husband. And he used poor people who didn't have any assets, shepherds who didn't have a voice, a city that didn't have any respect, a birthplace that didn't even have a bed. He sent a king with no subjects, a king with no land, no wealth, no authority, no protection. And through all of this, the most unlikely of people and circumstances and places, he opened up a pathway to heaven so that we can be renewed and redeemed and restored back to him. What this means is that God is not intimidated by your addiction. God is not intimidated by your financial problem or your relationship fallout. So stop saying things like, I'm too far gone. Stop saying I'm hopeless. Stop saying it's too late or it's too hard because it's in this, these, these circumstances where God says, here I am. Here I am to make a way. Here I am to light a path. It may be hard. It may be different than what you're looking for or, or different than what you expected, but here I am, and you matter to me. You matter. God becomes flesh. This is the primary miracle of Christmas because it gives us access to God. It reveals to us the thing that we've always wanted but didn't know how to take hold of. But I think the most beautiful element of this miracle is the proximity of God to his people. It says in verse 14, the Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In the original language, the word dwelling is best translated to camp. Anybody been camping? Camping is not fancy. Camping's not glamorous. It says Jesus made a home with us in the most basic and primitive way. Accessible, vulnerable, here with us. This is in contrast to how we often view God as being distant and far off, inaccessible, unapproachable, judgmental, harsh, cruel, unloving. What we understand here is that God is accessible and relational in Jesus. But he's also sympathetic He's also compassionate. He's also forgiving. And he's also devoted, so devoted that he's going to leave his throne in heaven to come to earth and be born as a baby in a manger with nothing. 
we find Jesus is accessible in the Christmas narrative. But also, later in his life, Jesus tells his followers how to remember him and how to celebrate his proximity to them in their hearts and in their lives. 33 years after, 33 years after God put on flesh, in fact, the night before his death, Jesus told his followers to remember him. He said, remember me. And he gave them this special ceremony that we call communion. Jesus told them that they could celebrate God becoming flesh and his sacrificial love for them and for all of us by taking bread and wine together in his name. Over the years, people have debated on the exact meaning of the ceremony. But everyone agrees that it's a celebration of God becoming flesh and closing the gap between heaven and earth. And so I think it's fitting that we celebrate communion today as we open up this series on Christmas. Ushers, I'll ask you to come forward. As they take their places, we want everyone, we want everyone to come forward and take the elements. And, and as you take the elements, take them back to your seat. Don't take them now. Just take the elements and take them back to your seat and we'll take them together. Can you guys start coming forward row by row? In verse 10, in chapter one, John is talking about the Logos. He's talking about Jesus and it says he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And it's tough to wrap our minds around that. That Jesus created the world. All things were created through him and by him and for him. That means every single one of us. And yet, as he came into the world, the people he created did not recognize him. They did not recognize his love and devotion and passion for them. They were expecting a, a warrior, warrior or a king and Jesus presented himself as humble. What this teaches us is that Jesus came to love those who he knew would reject him which means he loved us enough to give us a choice. He loved us enough to come for us, even though he knew many of us would turn our backs on him. And yet, I love this. I love this because it's so unlike us. It's so unlike us who will only love if we're loved back. We'll only give if someone's given to us. We'll only forgive if we've been forgiven first. We'll only make an effort if we know what's going to pay off. Look what it says in verse 12. And yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. To those who received him, to those who say yes to his 
pursuit of us, he gives us the right and the privilege to become adopted into his family as children born of God. Before we take these elements together, I want to pray that each of us can understand what this means for our lives. Will you close your eyes and pray with me and reflect with me? Maybe you say that as you sit here this morning, maybe it's your time to reflect on his deep love for you and your desire to draw near to him. Maybe you say, God, today I need to remember your forgiveness. God, today I need to remember your love for me. God, today I need to remember just to cast my anxieties on you. Maybe today you say, God, my identity is found in you, Jesus. My identity is found in your name. Maybe today you have to say, Jesus, remind me. Remind me of your grace and love. Motivate me to forgive like never before. Motivate me to love like never before. Maybe today is your time for the first time to say yes to Jesus. Jesus, I didn't know how much you love me. Jesus, I didn't realize that I mattered to you so much that you descend to heaven to come for me. I didn't know you came to be a light out of darkness, but I have been in darkness. And today I want to ask you into my life for the first time. And maybe I don't understand it all, but I know that I need you, Jesus. If that's you, you can just say out loud or in your heart, Jesus, make my heart your home. Jesus, make my heart your home. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, Jesus, make my heart your home. Jesus, renew my spirit. Jesus, be the Lord of my life. And that means nothing else will be Lord except you. And if you believe, if you believe, he will make you a new creation adopted into his family as a child born of God. Will you receive him this morning? If so, I ask you to take the bread and the juice. Let's take these together. Church, today we can sing hallelujah because he has come for us. We can rejoice because he is present with us. We can stand to our feet knowing that we can access his love and his grace. We can sing praise confident that he can hear us. Let us sing out gratitude this morning, church. Sing knowing that we are his. Sing because he is sufficient. He is worthy and his presence is in this place.